Okie dokie, oh. a podcast for those addicted to the study of scripture. Welcome fellow addicts, this is your safe place to OD. Samuel! Here I am. What are we going to talk about today? Today we're continuing our journey through the Gospels. In the previous episode, we had just wrapped up the Nativity story and the birth of Jesus. All kinds of great nuggets that we learned about uh, concerning shepherds and the glory of the Lord, meeting them in heavenly army and going to see young Jesus, and then the mm. uh, obedience of Jesus' parents in the purification uh, rituals in the book of Moses that they were doing. Uh, yeah. And then we had that awesome story of uh, Simeon blessing God slash Jesus. Uh, and then we wrapped up with uh, the prophetess Anna. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, to me, this is all getting good. I mean, the young and the restless got nothing on us. So <laughs> you about ready to get this ball rolling? Let's do it. All right. Today, we're going to be uh, starting in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Okay. Here we go. Matthew 2, 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. Okay. Believe it or not, there's a lot of stuff going on in here. Uh, First thing, maybe let's talk a little bit about Herod. Okay. And one thing that we know is that Herod died around 4 B.C., And so, this tells us that Jesus had to be born before then, if we're going to make sense out of this stuff, right? Now, uh, later in this story, we get down to like verse 16 or something, we're going to see something about the time uh, that's involved here, but we're just going to... We're going to do a little spoiler alert, peek ahead a little bit. It's going to be around two years, so if we include that time, this is going to suggest that Jesus was born you know, somewhere around 6 BC. And this probably is a little outside the box of what people normally think. And you know what? Don't hold on to this too hard and don't, you know, like be mad at us if we turn out to be wrong or whatever. But this seems, it's it's reasonable and logical. But here's the thing, Samuel. Saturn and Jupiter, there was this weird astronomical event that happened around 6 BC. There was this, uh, it's like a convergence. So they, they appeared almost together as if it was a brighter star, something, okay. something different in the sky. Yeah. So um, this is a, you know, reasonably well-known celestial event. So it's possible that this creates a very interesting connection between uh, Jesus and even Isaac. Interesting. What? How, how could that be? What are you talking What are you talking about? Well, here's the thing. Isaac, every time we think about Isaac and and the story, he's going to, you know, Abraham's taking him up to the top of the mountain. He's going to sacrifice him in obedience to God and all that. How old do we normally picture Isaac as being, Samuel? Just a little kid. Yeah. Maybe a teenager at most, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, But yeah, 12, 14, maybe something like that. But in Jewish tradition, in the Midrash, Isaac was 36 years old when Abraham took him up there for the sacrifice. Whoa. Way older than we normally imagine. Now, true or false? I don't know. (laughs) But in their traditions, he's 36. Now, why would that be important? Because... People estimate Jesus' death at age 30, and if he was born around 6 B.C., <gasps> 36, you know, quote-unquote, sacrificed at age 36. Now, I, we don't know if these things are, you know, actual figures or whatever, but they are really interesting mm-hmm. stories, Right. Absolutely. So anyway, so there's the thing about Herod. He kind of sort of helps us try to figure out when Jesus was born. 
Nobody's ever going to know the day, the day, but whatever, we're close. Uh, Also, we have in this story, these wise men. They're coming from the East, okay? Now, we've probably heard the term magi. Is that familiar to you? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, magi. Okay, so we don't know exactly where in the East, and we could pick a lot of places. We could say Persia or Media. We might Parthia, Arabia, Babylon. I, I don't know. Pick a place. But the point is, these magi, the, this these group of people, they, they've been around for a long time and, and in actually different cultures. Multiple cultures have these little group of, of men that, that would be considered magi. They're generally highly respected, very influential. Um, along the way, in, in the scriptures even, uh, and other places, we see them referred to as astrologers and priests, scholars, diviners, magicians. That's probably a real familiar one. Uh, And even in some places, they're known as kingmakers. They are influential people, okay? Now, interestingly, uh, Philo, Philo, heard it both ways, right? He even refers to Balaam way back in that Old Testament story where he's trying to curse Israel he refers, Philo refers to him as magos or magi, right? Yeah. So these guys, they're actually a big part of the history and the culture over there, not so much in our scriptures other than showing up in a story like this, okay? But I want you to notice, Jesus, uh, Jesus, (laughs) Samuel, (laughs) you've been promoted. Yes. (laughs) Uh. I want you to notice, uh, you tell me, how many magi, how many wise men were there? Uh, Well, it doesn't give a specific number other than the pronoun men, which seems to be plural. That's right. That's all we know. It's two or more. And now, how many do we have in our common retelling of the story? Three. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It could be as right or any as any other number, right? But I got to tell you how this came about. Uh, I've there. There's a story that goes back to the very first time that somebody tried to do a nativity play. All right, and they had they had the actors in there. They had given them all parts. Well, interestingly, what they had done is set up two wise men. And everything's going along great. They get to the part, though, where they're they're trying to worship and they're giving the gifts. Well, one of the guys gives the gold and one of the guy gives the frankincense and they're about to move on. And somebody else jumps in and says, but wait, there's myrrh. <laughs> Donuts. I've been waiting pretty much all my life to tell that joke in a public forum. <laughs> but anyway, so... Anyway, there's three wise men in common, you know, uh, cultural telling of the story. That's as good as anything else. Uh, But just to point out, we really don't know. Now, another point. The ancient world, uh, you know, around the time of Jesus and all of the nations surrounding, they they placed a great, great emphasis on the stars, probably more generally speaking, than the nation of Israel, the Jews, ever did. And I think part of that had to do with, you know, their relationship to God and their uh, understanding and expectations, whatever. But it wasn't as if the Jews really didn't care at all. And so I've included a little verse here, uh, Samuel, if you could read this, Numbers twenty four seventeen. Sure. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Right. And that not that a great statement? A star shall come out of Jacob. Mm-hmm. This Jesus, this Messiah, is born from the nation of Israel, Jacob right? It's cool. It's a great picture. So it's the Jews have it, but it's not as prevalent as you find in the outside world. I wanted to throw in real quick. I hear, here goes Samuel again with another Genesis callback. Um, 
your comment, it, it wasn't as if the Jews had no care at all. Think back to the creation story in Genesis 1 verse 14 when God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs yes. and for seasons and for days and years. So yes. God like made it clear in creation that those stars and those lights would be used for purposes to make people known of certain times and seasons that were going to happen throughout history. So yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it it's in there. It is. It really is. And the part that you brought up, well, maybe this will come up at a different time or whatever. Those times and seasons and all of that, those are actually appointed times, which mm-hmm. we see in the Jewish festivals. And that kind of stuff is going to come out in our study through the Gospels. We're going to see that all of those appointed times, those festivals, play a very important role. So good call, Samuel. <laughs> I like it. So here are these guys, the wise men, come from the east, and they show up, and it it kind of appears, it kind of reads like they're just asking anyone, everyone, where is this king of the Jews? We saw the star. So the news about them, as you can imagine, is probably traveling pretty fast. But notice, they have a very specific expectation. These guys aren't Israel. They're not Jews. They're none of this. But their expectation is, he who has been born king of the Jews. Why do they care? I mean, so here's this Israel, oppressed by the Romans, and there's this baby born to them, seemingly a nation of no real consequence, and yet these guys come from the east and they want to know, where's this king? Where's this king of the Jews? And, and it's difficult to understand why they care. But let's think back a minute. Do you remember when Israel hadn't been keeping their part of the covenant with God very well. And ultimately, what was the ultimate punishment that God had built into the covenant, Samuel? It was exile, being removed from the land that God promised them. Yes. And so, what was that, 576 BC, something like that? Mm -hmm. They were exiled where? To Babylon. Yeah. And Babylon is in the east. And so, you had Jews in Babylon, telling all of their story. They were there for 70 years, so they probably were telling a lot of their stories. And people back then loved stories, even if they weren't their own. And often, when they really liked their stories, they would even incorporate them into their own culture. It was just a thing. Well, isn't one of the Talmuds named the Babylonian Talmud? (laughs) Right. They've got, yeah, there's that, right? It's it, so, so the Jews going into exile has left an imprint. It left its mark. I mean, even Daniel, he was part of the government there. Remember that? The Daniel story, yeah. he was yep. raised up. And even after the exile, when people came back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, do you think that every single one of the Jews came back? Oh, definitely not. Some probably got used to the culture there and decided, I just want to stay here. Right. And so, all of the tradition, the stories, all of the, everything about Israel, it has now permeated, in some sense, out in the East. And so, they are aware of it, and they want their, they're interested in it. They want to see how it works out, right? So, it's, I don't know, it's a great picture. We've only done two verses, and we got all kinds of cool stuff going on. <laughs> yeah. yeah? So, let's try and keep moving. So, verse 3 says, When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Okay, now we talked about how news was probably traveling fast. Probably didn't take long to get to Herod, because, uh, I mean... He's, he's self-proclaimed king of the Jews. He wants to know everything that's going on, and so his people are going to be very faithful to tell him things, ASAP. But here's the thing. Samuel, if I was troubled, what might you be thinking or feeling or actually saying to me? I'd probably have some measure of 
empathy and sympathy, like, man, what's what's going on? Like, how can I help? Uh, can we get to the bottom of this? That kind of thing. Yeah. Oh, Paul, what's going on? But I got to tell you, when Herod is troubled, that's not what people think. <laughs> Look out. <laughs> Herod was a bad dude. And so everybody was probably thinking something more like, rut row, who <laughs> and how many are going to die? When Herod is troubled by news, Jerusalem is troubled by Herod and his response to the news, whatever that might be, right? Mm -hmm. So, this is bad news for all of Jerusalem. So, Herod's upset. We go to verse 4, and it says this, Assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Okay. (laughs) Wait a second. First... Notice that Herod is questioning the local religious leaders of the Jews, the chief priests, the scribes. And it might even be, do you remember the governing body in Israel, Samuel, what their name was? The Sanhedrin? Yeah, could have been them. But nonetheless, the first place Herod goes is to the local religious leaders. But I got to tell you, this is especially scary for them. Do you know why? Uh, Had he already created a channel of havoc previously? Yeah. Herod, he was notorious. He was infamous for all of his violence and trouble. He had already previously wiped out a Sanhedrin in Israel for giving him answers that he didn't like. Okay. Technically... He saved one guy. He only gouged his eyes out. Jeez. But sounds like a callback to Exodus with the two kingdoms in God's narrative, the kingdom of empire with Egypt and the Pharaoh and the oppressiveness and God's kingdom of Shalom. Sounds like Herod had some empire going on. Oh, yes, he did. He wanted to be associated with God's kingdom, peace, but everything he did was associated with empire, violence, Mm -hmm. cruelty, etc. Yeah. So, you got to imagine, these guys, when they get called in, they've got to be quaking in their boots, right? Yeah. But, before we show you that, notice his question. He asks, well, okay, to set it up, the wise men were only asking about a newborn king. But Herod knows enough to understand that this king that they're talking about, he's Messiah. He is Christ. He's the Savior, right? So Herod makes the connection and he inquires where the Christ was to be born. So we we often don't notice that. We don't we don't pick up on that. And part of it's because we we kind of have lost the importance of seeing the Messiah as king. This is the I mean it's like one of the most important aspects of his role is he is king over a kingdom ruling from Jerusalem over the whole, the whole earth. But that's going to get stressed as we continue through our study, so we can. that's enough for now. But Herod sees it. Yeah, that's significant. I mean, I know with Egyptian culture, the pharaohs almost saw themselves as God. And, I mean, in some ways, is Herod, like, surrendering that knowledge of there being a Messiah by inquiring where he's born? Ooh, yeah, I don't know. I, I mean... What we know is that he recognizes yeah, that's the still whole thing. Big. Yeah, what, what exactly is going on in his head? I, man, I don't know. He's such a bad dude. I mean, I don't want to make this sound like I'm a good dude, but I mean, he's bad enough that I have difficulty even relating to him, understanding mm-hmm. him, comprehending what's going on in his head. I he know. might have been asking to, you know, devising some plan for his, ben, you know, own personal benefit by, I don't know, thinking he could use the Messiah in some way. Oh, well, we know that's coming in the story. Or maybe <laughs> we don't. We're pretending we don't. 
No, it's it's coming. We're going to see it. This is good. Okay, so here you got Herod calling in these guys, and they're probably pretty scared, and he asks them these questions, but check it out. Verse 5, they told him, the answer to his question, the question was, where is this Christ to be born? And their answer is this. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. These were brave men, Samuel. Yes, they were. They told Herod the truth regardless of the consequences. This long-awaited king or Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And notice that even in their answer, the the whole fluid thing between king and Messiah is still happening because he asks where the Christ is going to be born and they tell him where a ruler is going to come from. Yeah. It's a king. King and Messiah, it's, it's just one and the same to them, right? But now check this out. He says it's written by the prophet, but he doesn't tell us which one. Well, it just happens to be Micah. So we could look at Micah chapter five, verse two. That's where it comes from. But Matthew makes some subtle changes. See, in the original, it reads, too little to be among the clans of Judah when he's talking about Bethlehem. Too little to be among the clans. But Matthew writes, by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Pretty crazy change. Now, he could have gotten it from somewhere. Maybe it came from a Targum or maybe the Septuagint or something. I mean, things that he may have heard or read along the way, but he is changing it, right? And another one, it says uh, that... uh, this ruler who will shepherd my people Israel, well, it kind of sort of matches something that's in Micah. If you were to continue reading, you get down around Micah 5, verse 4, but it actually matches much better with something that comes from 2 Samuel, chapter 5, verse 2, where he's talking about David. Can you read that one, Samuel? Yeah. You shall be shepherd of my people Israel. Yeah. Now, hear how close that one is, mm-hmm. right? So Matthew, and, and this is so important that we see this. Matthew is trying to lay out the story, but while he's laying it out, he's trying to lay out the authority, the foundation, the reason that this story is to be accepted, right? Understood to be a continuation of the story that's already in their scriptures. So what does he do? He goes back to the Old Testament scriptures, the only scriptures they had, right? But they treat them as they are the authority and proof for everything. And this can't be stressed enough because we're going to see it all through our, our walk through the Gospels. This is what the New Testament writers did. It's how they brought um, value or, or uh, uh, integrity to the story they were telling. Definitely. Well, one of the best things I feel like I can tell people who are reading through the Gospels is get a Bible that gives you footnotes of when the Gospel writer is referencing something from the Old Testament. That was revolutionary for me to like just see, oh man, like the majority of the New Testament is called back to the Torah and the Tanakh. It's true. It's true. It's way more than we ever imagined. And to your point about Bibles with footnotes, etc., the funny thing is you could get a number of different translations that have those and different people have worked on it. And so if you were to like join them all together, you're going to get an even bigger picture. It's a lot more work, of course, but Mm -hmm. every different translation is going to have you know, potentially some some extra little nuggets here and there about what's referring back to what. Mm-hmm. But we're going to see more of that, so we can we can move on. Uh, chapter, uh, where are we at? Verse seven. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he had just questioned the local religious leaders 
about, hey, where is this supposed to be? Now he brings in the wise men. He's trying to figure out when this would have been, right? He's asking, hey, when did the star appear? You know, when, when would he have been born? So he's trying to get the where and the when. And of course, the wise men, they have no reason to keep anything back, withhold information, at least yet. So they tell him what they wants to know. So Herod, in return, he lets them know where this birth is supposed to be. It's supposed to be in Bethlehem. It's what he got from the religious leaders, right? And so, I mean, if you were there, you'd kind of imagine, hey, this is all feeling pretty good. Everybody's on the same team. We're all working together. We're going to find this king, right? Well, hold on to that thought. (laughs) We get to verse eight, it says this, and he sent them to Bethlehem. So Herod is sending the wise men to Bethlehem, saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring word to me, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. So Herod's He's endorsing the wise men. He's encouraging the wise men. Fulfill your mission. Go, find him. And when you do, tell me, because I want to worship him too. Mm-hmm. Are you believing this, Samuel? Uh, I'm feeling some shadiness going on. Yeah. The truth is, Herod is a very bad guy. And as we soon will see, Worship isn't exactly what he has in mind. Mm-hmm. But let's not jump ahead. Let's keep going to the story. Verse 9. After listening to the king, they, that's the wise men, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star... They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So here are the wise men, probably feeling pretty good. They're feeling like people are helping them in their quest. And then they go on their way. And all of a sudden, the star, the one that they had seen before that prompted their journey in the first place, reappears. And okay, I'm not sure how it works, but somehow, apparently, it even takes them to the place where the child was, presumably some house or something in Bethlehem. So you can imagine, the wise men, I mean, they got to be pretty prompt, right? Yeah. This is working out great. Yeah. So you remember earlier when I mentioned something about, you know, the that celestial event, Saturn, Jupiter, all that kind of thing? Uh-huh. Well, there's a very interesting thing. Now, I, I got to, you got to know, D- do I know anything about astronomy, Samuel? No, I know a little bit about software, but not astronomical software. Um, Okay, but I'm just telling you what I've heard, okay? There are some, and and they use all of the, the modern astronomical software, right? They believe that this event that we're talking about, this event in the stars, okay, it's it's kind of like uh, Saturn and Jupiter, I think, are, are the, the, the bodies involved here. It's like they they converge at some point and then they continue on their paths, but then one of them does like this little loop-de-loop thing, and believe it or not, they converge a second time. Now again, I'm not the guy, I can't tell you if this is true or false or whatever, but these are really interesting stories and there's people who've made videos about it and stuff like that. I'm not saying they're right, but I'm saying it's interesting, interesting enough and fun enough that you ought to go looking for it, check it out, because it's a cool image to think that there was actual there was an actual celestial event that happened and even kind of repeated itself that may relate to this whole story that we're talking about right here. Yeah, I mean, it it gives a potential reason rather than just saying it happened just because it did or just because, you know, it's in the Bible or whatever. I, yeah. I, I think it's good just to have all those different possibilities in mind. Yeah, it is. It is. And again, now, obviously, when we read it, we're looking from the perspective of, well, we'd like to find ways to see that all of this is factual and true. Other people read it for an opposite reason, 
And so I think people doing research like that is actually good for both. Mm-hmm. I mean, one way or another, when, when, when all comes to its end, I think that we'll probably find the Bible to be pretty much right about everything. But along the way, sometimes we have to live in a world where we just don't know. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes it even appears to be wrong, and we just have to wait for more information to come to light and hope it makes it right. Yeah. Right? But anyway, so here we go. The wise men show up, <clears throat> verse 11, and it says, And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. Can't forget that one. <laughs> You're going to have that joke in the head in your head for the rest of your life, aren't you, Samuel? I am. All right. But seriously, this, no matter how you slice it, it's an amazing picture. You've got these, these men, presumably very important men. They're coming from, uh, most likely, a very powerful nation. And they they're falling down. They're giving honor, worship even, to this presumed Jewish king. And again, just to, to give you the picture, he, he's supposedly the king of a nation who's living under the oppression of another people, the Romans. So it, it's, it's an amazing picture that they would worship in a circumstance like that. Yeah. But... This is a great image, a foreshadow, a picture of the Messianic kingdom. So now we, I think, uh, we believe in a a very literal kingdom, okay? Now, people could argue about things, is it really a thousand years or not, or this or that or whatever, but we stand convinced that this kingdom is a, a literal thing. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to rule and reign from Jerusalem. So in that image, when Messiah is reigning as king in the Messianic era, the expectations is that the nations will come to worship and to learn his ways, the the Torah, right? And, And so we see part of that here in the wise men. Right? So here's what we're going to do. Just to to give you the picture, let's go back to Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. And Samuel, I'm kind of cheating for time. I just pulled out the snippets. Anybody else can go back and read the whole thing. Could you read those snippets? Sure. It shall come to pass in the latter days. Okay, now when are the latter days? Uh, Like the cusp of the, the kingdom, yeah. Yes, exactly. The messianic era. So sorry, do that again. Okay. It shall come to pass... In the latter days, all the nations shall flow to it, and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the image that we're talking about. Here's another one. Uh, Isaiah chapter 60, verses 5 and 6. And again, I'm cheating with a little snippet. Samuel, read those little bits. All right. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. They shall bring gold and frankincense. Oh my gosh, what the heck? It says it explicitly. (laughs) I know. Now they left out the myrrh, you know, and and again, that somebody could jump in and say what, Samuel? Uh, Oh no. But Um, wait! There's myrrh. Yeah! (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, so, so you see in these Old Testament scriptures, this image that's that's right there in the story of the wise men, right? But they aren't the fulfillment of it. They're just a little foreshadowing of what's to come, right? So I don't, this is just great stuff. So a little mm-hmm. bit more. Um, in, in the verse that we just read, it also says, notice it says, going into the house, they saw the child. Now, this isn't, and, and I know we've get, we've got this picture, this iconic image, the wise men showing up. There's a little baby in the manger and all of that. Yeah, we're past that part. That was the shepherds. Okay, this is the wise men, and this isn't a baby anymore. It's a small child or a toddler or whatever word you think he's. He's probably at least two years old. So the nativity scene. It's a, it's kind of a conflagration or, 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 uh, 
well, I don't know what other word we could use, just kind of smushing things together. Mm-hmm. And it's okay. It doesn't hurt anything that we have this as our image or what. Well, it's okay. But it's also good to know, just could, could we just know a little more of the detailed facts, right? Yeah. And so, so that's what's going on here. He's, he's a little toddler. Um, and, and just if I could point out a little information about the gifts, gold, this was super common gift for a king. Okay, so we got that. Frankincense, now this is a little odd. In, in scripture, for us, this is almost exclusively associated with priesthood and offerings. And so that actually tells us a little something that they were coming to find this king, and yet something about the gifts, this frankincense, also hints toward his priesthood. So one day we'll make it to the book of Hebrews, and yes. boy, we're going to love talking about that. Spiritual priest. Oh, yeah. And then the myrrh, that's also used in anointing oil specifically for kings. So so these gifts, they, they're very appropriate for this person that they're worshiping. And then just a quick little side note, uh, myrrh is also used when they, they make their anointing oil for the dead. And that also is a really cool connection and picture to what we're doing here. But just just understand that at least in the context, we're not, his death is nowhere in view, right? We're, we're mostly focused about his kingship. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we shouldn't notice the other part and it isn't going to be super cool later, but for here and for now, we're just really concerned about the king part. Yeah. So, I don't know. I felt like that was just a big deal. Yep. That one little verse right yeah. there. But let's keep going. Yeah. All right. Uh, verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So the wise men, and again, we don't know how many, and we don't know how many are warned in a dream, one or more, we don't know, but don't go back to Herod. So it's kind of funny because their interaction with Herod probably wasn't too bad up to this point. I'm sure he was playing playing the role, right? He's being Mr. Helpful. Mm-hmm. But God gives these traveling wise men from the east a dream, warns them to stay away from this Herod guy. And they listen. They just go straight home. They avoid Jerusalem. They avoid Herod. And can you feel it, Samuel, that somehow... There's a dark all cloud. Of a sudden, yeah, this story, it seemed so sweet. And now it's starting to turn a little bit sour, right? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, believe me, you ain't seen sour yet. <laughs> so let's, let's go a bit. Unless you had something, you sound like you might. Nope, not yet. All right. Well, let's go just a little bit more. Uh, Let's get to verse 13. He says, Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. So, the wise men are there, they get a dream, they obey. Now Joseph gets a dream. Has this ever happened before? God meeting people in dreams? God meeting Joseph in dreams. Oh. Um, with angels telling him what yeah. to do. Oh, yeah, to, to name, name him Jesus. Yeah. Hey, it's okay. Mary is pregnant. It, this is by the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. right? You don't have to worry that she's been a been a naughty girl or whatever, right? So, yeah, this happened before. And what did Joseph do? Last time he got information from an angel in a dream. I mean, at the end, he made the right decision and obeyed. Yes, he did. He obeyed. So here he is. Joseph is also warned. He's instructed to go to Egypt. And this is just, ah, Samuel, he's instructed to go to Egypt that's, that feels so backwards, like compared to Genesis, when like God was like, "Don't you know Abraham, Isaac? Don't go to Egypt. Like you're going to fall into empire. You need to stay away." And now He's telling them, "No, actually, go to Egypt for safety." 
Exactly. And this this goes back, I think we mentioned this in an earlier podcast, this idea that the whole concept of the Gentiles being included in the redemption and the salvation, it's a continuing theme all through the scriptures. And here's, here's a, a, a maybe slightly more specific example of that, Samuel. It's a long line of examples of God using the Gentiles, using the nations to bless and to care for his people, Israel. So here it is again, and we've got to get that in our heads. God is involved with the Gentiles, the nations, all along. And so we have to see how God is bringing the story to its conclusion with that in mind. Mm -hmm. Now, another point, is Egypt different now than it was back in the Exodus story, Samuel? I would assume so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's way different. And in fact, this is important. There's a very, very large Jewish population in the port city of Alexandria at this time. And so, if you think about it, here you are, a man, woman, child, you've got to go somewhere. You know that you're fleeing for your life or your child's life. You head down to Egypt, where are you going to go? Well, we don't know where they went, and it could have been anywhere, but it's not crazy to think that they would go to a place like Alexandria. Lots of people. It's easy to hide there. Mm -hmm. And they're Jewish people. They would have felt at home. They could have been a part of the community. They might even have joined in with like, uh, you know, he was a carpenter. He might have... um, joined in with the local carpenters, and that's how they made their way or something, right? So here's the other thing. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, Samuel, what do we know about their financial status? Um, That they were on the poor side of the spectrum, and we know that from the specific type of sacrifice that they chose to give whenever they were purifying Jesus. Uh, yeah, yeah, that actually was for Mary's purification. Oh, that's that right. Part. Yeah. Oops. No, that's good. Um, so we know that they're probably a poor family, probably still a poor family. And so think about it. It's possible, and we might even say probable, that the very gifts that were brought by the wise men, the gold, the frankincense, the myrrh, all valuable things— they may have actually been used to fund their little trip down to Egypt. That's because how else were they going to do it? Seems very providential. Yeah, it's, it's cool, right? <laughs> I was also going to say you had said just a second ago of this is an example of God using the Gentiles to bless His people Israel. You could also see the reciprocating uh, promise that God said to Abraham about you know. I will bless those who bless you. And so in some ways you could say yes. that the nations are being blessed in this situation because by offering shelter to Jesus and his parents, they yes. kept him alive so that, you know, th- the message could go forth to the nations later. Yeah, you are absolutely right. And if I may say how very Jewish of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, that's good. You. Yeah, that's good. Very good. All right, so Joseph gets this dream. He's supposed to skedaddle. And verse 14 says this, and he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And so here we see this alacrity of Joseph. He gets a word from God through an angel in a dream, and he just responds. He does what he's supposed to do. Now, we don't know it, but it's reasonable to even read this very sentence and say, uh, Pretty much had the dream, and as soon as he woke up, boom, they departed. It was at night. Doesn't that sound kind of like a Passover in the Exodus oh. with God telling his people, like, prepare yourself, Be like, ready. get your food ready, your provisions, you're leaving tonight. Yeah, good call, yeah. See, this, uh, to bring in the, the, the pictures, the image, the culture of of Israel, Jews, Judaism, it's so important to seeing this story in its proper light. So good one, Samuel. Like it. Uh, verse 15, um, so they, they depart to Egypt, and verse 15 says, 
and remained there until the death of Herod. And this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. Okay, now this is interesting because Herod, we know, dies around 4 BC. So no matter how you slice it, they couldn't have been in Egypt for very long. Because, I mean, like we talked about before, I mean, it's probably somewhere around 6 BC-ish when he was born. So if he dies in four, he was a couple years old when the the wise men show up, right? I mean, this is all kind of working together. So you can see that somewhere in this 6 BC, 7 BC, something like that, it's a very likely time for, for Jesus to have been born. But anyway, they couldn't have been there all that long. But Matthew does something interesting. He's quoting from a portion of Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1. And he does it as if it's a prophecy concerning Messiah that has been fulfilled. But this wasn't one of your typical, typically known Messiah-type passages. But this is a great example of how Jews, in their day and in their time, used Scripture and taught from Scripture. So, and, and, and it's this whole idea where, number one, they know the original context and meaning, then they rip it from the original context and offer a new interpretation, and even while they do that, they stay within the overarching story. This is something we've talked about already, right? hmm Yeah. So he's doing it again, and so here you see uh, in in this particular scripture, this is very specifically talking about Israel, and, and Israel, in this case, was God's son. But now Matthew's using it as if Messiah is God's son, which, okay, we know that that's coming. And we see that both are now called out of Egypt. That's a cool connection. And they're being called out of Egypt for salvation. Now, in the original, they're called out for their own salvation. Jesus is being called out, along with the family, for mankind's salvation, and in fact, all of creation. So, just some cool parallels there. I think that's super awesome. I really like what you had said about this uh, concept of how Jewish people uh, quoted prophecy, uh, and you had said that they they know that original context, and then they rip it from the original and offer a new interpretation. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. the writers of the Talmud had looked into Proverbs 5, um, verses 15 through 17, about Torah being living water. And um, uh-huh. I'm just going to read this really quick because it fits perfectly with what you said. Um, this rabbi named Ula, he raises, uh, raises a contradiction with the verse that says, Drink water from your own cistern, and it is also written in the same verse, and flowing water from your own well. And he explains, initially, one should quote, Drink water from your own cistern, and that means, uh, like the cistern that draws water into one location, you should learn all existing knowledge from the Torah. And ultimately, mm. the end goal is that one can produce, quote, flowing waters from your own well. And that means original oh. thought and innovative insights into the Torah. So it's almost like this aspect that they knew that text so well that as yes. they dynamically, you know, interacted with it year after year, things like that happened where there's this new interpretation of a prophecy that was written, you know, long ago. I don't know. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. Oh, it is. Yeah. Yeah, it's so good. And and I know I talked about this before, that people people do that a lot today. And some of them do it well, and some of the some of them they really mess things up. And so again, a key part of it is this idea of knowing the original and then bringing that out but at the same time, it's limited by staying within the overarching story and finding a way, most importantly, to connect it to Messiah. That's not always the thing, but that, yeah, it's so good. Wow. 
See, we need to do that. We need、yeah. to become that flowing water. Yeah. And,、oh, that's good. It's, it's almost like、um, you, you develop your own voice within Torah study. You know,、yeah. it's, there, there's value and it's necessary to you know, learn from your quote unquote rabbi all the things that they have been taught throughout the generations because that's necessary. You need a guide. But I don't know.、Yeah. You, it just, you, you have so much more. Ownership and possession over that wisdom and knowledge when it's like dynamically flowing into all of the situational aspects of your life where you can incorporate it in new ways. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's good stuff. All right. Well, um, kind of looking at the clock here, Samuel, and I'm feeling like this might be a good stopping point. I think so as well. Yeah, I think as we continue, we may have trouble finding good stopping points. Okay. But、um, we're going to go with this one, and we'll just pick up on our next episode with、uh, verse 16. All right.、But、for now, let's call it, call it quits. Okie dokie.、Oh! Real quick before we close out, just want to remind you all that our podcast is on both the Podbean app and Apple Podcast.、Uh, we really love your engagement and any questions and、uh, constructive criticism that you might have on what you're listening to online from us. So please feel free to reach out to us. And we really encourage you to、um, just do the spreading of the word, word of mouth kind of、um, Communication about this podcast to your friends and to your family. Talk about it in person. You know, shoot the link to a friend on a text or an email. That is the best way that this podcast can reach other people is when you're discussing it in relationship to one another. So we just encourage you to do that. But, anyways, thank you for listening to the Okie Dokie Mo's podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. You can also visit us on our website at www.okidokimos.com for more information, or you can listen online right there. Until next time, we hope and pray that you will do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Talk to you again soon. <laughs>